0: We should never lose sight, however, of one thing that, as we can see from Romans 11, when Paul speaks about the dark days in the time of Elijah, uh, he tells us of how Elijah felt, how depressed he was, and how he felt that everything was going uh, the wrong way, and that the work of God was about to be completely destroyed. The divine voice, however, said, I have preserved a remnant. You may not see it, but there is. I have preserved a remnant. Which reminds us once again that it is God who preserves the remnant. And he's been doing that all through history. And and as we will see this evening, that constant preservation of the remnant is at the very heart of revivals the subject revival has been abused misused um, distorted so much so that it's become very difficult to know where revivals are really happening if they happen anywhere it seems like it has come this has become for quite a while now very common uh, to claim revivals where you know because there's some noise you know and people become very happy very excited and they have this uh, emotional experiences and that is identified with revival uh, i'm afraid the bible would have us to think quite differently about what real revivals are but we need to uh, avoid the tendency to romanticize sentimentalized revivals. As we have been seen and as we will see even, even this evening, re, uh, revivals are at the heart of God's work through history. It is one of the essential components of history. History would not have taken place without revivals because human history would not have continued without revivals because revivals are according to scripture, the very instrument, the very method that God uses to revive the work of his hands among his people, so that his people would uh, not be, they would not disappear from the face of the earth and humanity itself would be destroyed. So when we think revivals in those terms, they take on uh, a feature an appearance, and indeed uh, a substance, um, by which we can really understand how important they are. Um, as I was saying, um, the experience that Elijah felt of, you know, depression and discouragement out of discouragement all of your altars have been destroyed all of your work is is gone to naught and uh, I alone I'm the only one who's been left there's no one else Um, if we would say the truth you know we may have often felt that way not that we were completely alone uh, because we do know of other Christians but when we look at the presence of God's work, it looks so very dim at times, so very small, as to hardly be taken any notice by the world at all, as if we don't even exist. And so we may fall into that state of mind of despondency and discouragement, as Elijah did. And if we know history at all, We know that Christians have often felt that way. Uh, Throughout history, things have often uh, come to a place of such darkness and corruption where Christians felt the Lord was about to come. It cannot get any worse than this, O Lord. You must just be about coming. And as far as Antichrist... (laughs) <laughs> history is full of antichrists you know figures of power and corruption and you know devilish dominion that could easily be identified as the antichrist and how many antichrists have been identified through the centuries we must not judge too harshly Christians that have judged those things in that way uh, We would have done the same. We would have felt the Lord was about to come. The end couldn't get, the the world couldn't get any worse than this. Uh, Jesus must be just about returning. That's the end of Christ, you know, that emperor, that pope. Um, And uh, the fact, however, is that as dark as it has often often, uh, gotten in the world throughout history, somehow the end didn't come. And did not come because the Lord revived the work of His hands. Beyond our understanding, perhaps even when the church had lost all hopes to see any change, the Lord stabbed him and made such a difference because when we speak of revivals we can speak on a smaller scale but usually in history we remember the larger movements of God and that were so, um, so large, so vast so impacting society, culture and especially the moral fiber of the nations that The church itself was taken by surprise. You know, surprising words of the Spirit of God, you know, back in Jonathan Edwards' days, surprising conversions, unexpected. And those of us who believe that we're not going towards a positive ending of this present era, but we will see a catastrophe we can easily fall into a defeatist attitude to where, well, you know, what's the use? What's the use in praying? What's the use in hoping? What's the use of giving my life, my years, my youth? Whatever remains of my life, things are not going to change anyway. The Lord has abandoned humanity, (laughs) you know, uh, so why bother anymore? The fact of the matter is that we are never allowed by Scripture to fall into a state of mind so despondent, so discouraged, so hopeless. God can still change the course of history. As far as humanity is concerned, humanity would go right down into hell tomorrow but God can still change the course of history. I understand that we Christians live in tension. Because in one way we say, Come, Lord Jesus, I can't stand this anymore. <laughs> I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> There's a much better place awaiting for me. That's where I want to be. I want to see you, I want to be with you, I want to be with your people. I want to be in the new heaven and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus. But then, the tension. Lord, save my wife. Save my husband. Save my children. (laughs) Save my friends. Save my enemies. Save my people. Um, Because you love them. and, And you know that Christ's return would determine their condemnation. And you don't want them. To be condemned forever. So you pray that, Lord Terry, Terry just a little bit more. (laughs) Lord Terry, not just yet. Not just yet. Support me. Strengthen me. Give me the grace to continue to the end, but not yet, because I don't want them to, to die without you or to be condemned without you. So we have that tension. And it is the tension of love. The tension of love love often creates tension. And often the tension is between what we would wish for our own commodity. And just like Paul says, I'm straightened between two things here. I'd like to go, I'd like to go, but I also like to stay. <laughs> I'd like to go and I'd like to stay. And so in one sense we must say, come Lord Jesus, put an end to this, and sometimes we we sing that, and other times we say, Lord Terry, just a little more, give me one more opportunity, (laughs) give me one more sermon, give me one more uh, track to distribute, (laughs) use me in some way, you know, and then cut the light off, but just, just a little bit more. It's the tension of love. Uh, And both desires are legitimate. It is right to say, Lord, come. And it is right to say, Lord, Terry, be merciful. Grant again your mercy. Both are legitimate. But that meets tension within us. And it's a tension we must learn to live with for the rest of our life until he comes. So we see how very important is the subject of revival when we look at it from a biblical, historical point of view as the method that God has used throughout history to keep his work alive, to maintain his remnant alive, so that the world would continue, would continue. Where should we go? to see what revival is about. There are many places in Scripture where God intervened to revive His work, but I would like for us to look at what happened in Acts chapter 2. It would look to me like the greatest movement of God in biblical history. Um, The book of Acts... Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 we have the this amazing movement of God taking place in the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem in one day 3,000 people were converted they didn't just claim to be converted Um, It had happened before, you know, in the days of the kings, where uh, in the time of Josiah, for example, Ezekiah, where there were movements of God. It seems like Israel recommitted itself to the Lord, to the nation. But we know from all the writings of the prophets that those claims of recommittal were never genuine. They were never genuine. Even what happened in the time of uh, Josiah, the Lord identified it as a counterfeit revival through the lips of Jeremiah. Your return to me was not real, the Lord says to Israel in Jeremiah. When we speak of movements of God that saw the conversions of thousands, there's really nothing in the whole of the Bible as the take and because it is that, it's the greatest true genuine movement of God in which in one day 3,000 people were converted. And I don't think in church history this has ever happened again. To this extent, that 3,000 people were converted in one day. I love history. I think I read a lot of history, but I never uh, read of anything like this. So we are face to face with the Greatest movement of God, and so it is here, most of all, among the many passages of Scripture that we can, that we need to go. Uh, let me give an example. Of what I'm saying, if we go to, like um, Acts chapter 10, uh, Acts chapter 10. Um, you remember what happened in the house of Cornelius? Peter comes as he was guided by the Lord and as Cornelius had prayed, seeking God, even though he was not converted, he still prayed and sought the Lord. So Peter finally is directed by the Lord to go to the house of Cornelius and share the gospel with the people that were uh, in the house. And then look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word
1: there you
0: have it there you have it that's revival revival takes place when the following happens the gospel is preached acts chapter 10 peter preaches the lord jesus christ the gospel is preached Forgiveness of sins for sinners is announced, is declared. And people are invited to turn to Christ, to trust in Christ, uh, in repentance of faith. And as the Gospel is preached, the Spirit is shed in the hearts of those who hear by the Lord. But the Lord Jesus Himself... Uh, Acts chapter 2 teaches us that it is the Lord because he is Lord who uh, sheds the spirit <laughs> um, and proving by that very act that he is alive, resurrected, alive reigning and saving. He is real. But what we have here these people being converted. Because without the Holy Spirit coming down, this is a human expression, I'm sure. <laughs> God is everywhere. He doesn't need to come down anywhere. But we use these words. The Bible uses these words to help us understand. It is a work that is done by heaven. It's not an earthly thing. This is not something that no one on earth can fabricate. It must. You must have the Word and the Spirit. Spirit and the Word. The two are never, never, never to be separated. Uh, Hardly anything is more important than that. (laughs) That You have the Word and the Spirit. The Word without the Spirit becomes dry and lifeless because life comes from God, (laughs) God Himself. But the Spirit without the message, uh, that doesn't work either because God has created us humans. (laughs) And we can only be converted by understanding. (laughs) Our our mind must be enlightened. Our conscience must be convicted. Our will needs to be moved. Our affections need to be changed. (laughs) And all of that can happen only as the truth is spoken and the spirit works. Both are necessary. And this is what we find here, but in fact, uh, what we find here is conversions taking place on a smaller scale. This is a family, <laughs> this is a family, and a few friends who met in a house, and yet the gospel is preached, the spirit. Falls, the spirit is shed abroad in their hearts, they are converted, uh, And there is like we could call it a domestic revival, a house revival. Many of these have taken place through history, many of these. We must never underestimate the importance of smaller scale works of God. Uh, you need the extraordinary. But you need the ordinary. The one conversion, the two conversions, the small conversions. But then you also need the extraordinary. You need both. You need both. Just like in the Christian life, you need that ordinary walk with God. But at times you need those extraordinary interventions that He knows how to give to us when we need them indeed. Indeed. But this is very important because if we go to Acts 2, then we see exactly what we are talking about. Um, we will go deeper into the chapter in just a minute, but I want to begin somewhat with the letter with the latter part of it verse 37 when they heard this when they heard the gospel preached by Peter they were cut to the heart why were they cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit cut them the Holy Spirit convicted them you see the word was preached and the Holy Spirit worked and then the text says uh, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's almost a cry of despair. That's almost a cry of despair because Peter had just told them that they had crucified the Messiah. When they say, what shall we do? That question means this. In the light of what we have done, in the light of the crime that we have committed, the utmost crime that could ever be committed, the crucifixion, the torture, and the crucifixion of the Messiah. What in the world can we do at this point? What hope is there for us? That's the meaning of the question. Then Peter said to them, You must repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call this is such a wonderful statement it's such a wonderful statement because it projects our view into the future this is for you for your children but as for as many as God will call through history. That's the vision. That's the vision. And with many other words, He testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they proved to be really converted because they continued, you see, perseverance is a mark of true conversion, continued steadfastly. That's the ordinary, you see, the day-to-day walk, the day-to-day commitment. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So, I mean, we would be drawn to read the whole thing. It's so wonderful to read. It. But what are we seeing here? Well, uh, when Peter talked about the Holy Spirit being given to them, he was talking about the same thing that had happened to them because you see these men who were these three thousand who were then converted they were the ones who had been wondering why these Christians could speak in so many languages and Peter explained that this was happening because the spirit had been shed abroad in their hearts and he said look at verse um, verse 33 therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. You see that? The pouring out of the Spirit of God first upon the church. The church was already converted. But they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit because the church, the apostolic church, was living in a time of transition and between the death, the resurrection, ascension of Christ. And as John 17 would remind us, the Spirit had not been given because the Lord had not risen yet. So they were converted. They were, they were believers. But they were living in that time of transition in which the baptism of the Holy Spirit had to take place when they were already saved. But that's no longer the case from this moment on. All those who are converted now are immediately baptized with us, with the Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we have all been baptized in the Spirit of God, which makes us one body. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just an experience for a few (laughs) that divides the church into groups. (laughs) The baptism of the Holy Spirit is that blessing of being baptized of the Holy Spirit receiving the Holy Spirit in our life which makes us one with the whole body of Christ is an instrument of unification not of division we, we believe that the Pentecostal doctrine here is it's not according to Scripture but this is not the point the point is that this is how Peter describes what is happening the Spirit of God as he says here has been poured out by the Lord Jesus because as he's been exalted by the Father having conquered everything he demonstrated that he is Lord and he, he gained that also our salvation he gained our salvation by giving of his life and as he so much humbled himself, the Father now so highly exalted him, that it's given him one name that's above every name. And is the Lord Jesus now who sheds the Holy Spirit. Demonstrated through that, by that, uh, that he is, uh, he has died for our sins, risen from the grave, and he is now reigning as Lord of heaven and earth. He is king indeed. (laughs) King indeed. Just now. Um, But these are interesting terms. Because we need to stick with Scripture. Uh, Especially when it comes to these major terms. What do you mean by the pouring out of the Spirit? You know? Of this shedding abroad of the Spirit of God these are the terms the Bible uses when it speaks about this um, individual conversions because Romans chapter 5 Galatians chapter 4 this happens to everyone who believes when someone is converted in their room or in their bathroom or in, in their shed or in the woods any, anywhere someone is converted the Spirit of God is poured out on so That's what revival is. It's that work of salvation through which God revives. Makes alive. <laughs> uh, he gives new birth. He saves people. So you do not have revivals without conversions. And revivals are not just rededications. Revivals are when God saves an individual, a group of people, a family, a whole community, if he so desires. That's what it is. But the nature of it doesn't change. You see, <laughs> what happens here in, in Acts 2, even though it is so massive, unimaginably great, 3,000 people in one day, in, in its nature is no different from what happened in the house of Cornelius. It's the same thing. The same words are used. The same concepts are used. The same thing takes place. The gospel is preached. The Holy Spirit cuts the hearts. People are converted. The Spirit is poured out upon them. Of course, where many are converted, we rejoice all the more. But even when one sheep is converted, the Lord taught us, Don't despise the one sheep. Don't despise the one sheep. If we despise the one sheep, we will hardly see revival at all in our life. (laughs) We must be happy with little, and then perhaps the Lord will give us more. That's one thing that you learn on the field. It seems like in this country, every preacher is going for the mega church. (laughs) In Italy, you don't have even people walking through the door and looking for it a Christian church, I'm looking for a Baptist church, I'm looking for a reformed church. It doesn't happen. All the people you ever have are the people that will be converted, basically that's it. It's basically the fruit of your labor through the grace of God working through us in us. And so you learn to appreciate the days of small things because often is that way. Right. But these are good lessons. They make us humble uh, and more, you know, dependent on God and appreciative. Appreciative. It's like a child. If you give him too much, too soon, he will not appreciate it. He will be spoiled. But if you make him work, uh, and you begin with a, you know, like five dollars to a child, that's good. Because he learns to appreciate money, he learns responsibility. Um, now, because revival is such an important thing in scripture and throughout history, as we have seen this evening, um, we need to be careful about counterfeits. <laughs> uh, there's been there have been many throughout history, many counterfeits. Now we don't want to get into that Um, but when you pervert the nature of revival and you uh, fabricate counterfeits you can hardly damage the work of God more than that Um, that is a tremendous damage that is done to the work of the gospel when you counterfeit revivals because the church believes well, we are experiencing revival. People are clapping their hands, you know, uh, very, very happy, and so we have revivals. And, uh, and they believe that, whereas revival is, is not taking place at all, and so the church is deceived. Uh, it seems, you know, like, you begin to hear about these strange things, people falling on the floor rolling on the ground jumping and uh, seeing visions and dreams and strange things uh, already in the 1600s in Scotland you have some of these things happening uh, but in the 1700s you surely see them uh, if you read the diary of Uh, John Wesley for example not just what people say about him but his diaries you can see already the strong beginning of the perversion of revivals Uh, but uh, in the western frontier in this country later on towards the end of the 1700s in areas such as Kentucky, for example, and also North Carolina, and in different parts of this country, there are really new methods being employed, new measures being employed, uh, new tricks being employed to manipulate uh, in people's consciences and in people's minds, to, to bring them into religion, embrace old time religion. And then, of course, uh, you have some of the descendants of Jonathan Edwards that distorted his message. Uh, The so-called New Haven theology that that took place after him. And what Charles Finney adopted in the end was just that. New Haven theology put into practice. And he became the greatest fabricator of revivals that ever was. And then you have Sam Jones I have many others um, but if, if you read the work of Charles Finney on revival you say well, this is completely contrary to scripture there's hardly a word of truth in this whole book uh, it seems like revival can be really be the product of our own works organization and methods and techniques uh, God doesn't have to intervene in a particular way says Charles Finney. Well, this is completely contrary to Scripture. Revival is never something that we can do. We are completely dependent on God. We see that here. We will see here in just a second that this is actually the truth. But since then, since then, uh, in this country, revival has happened mostly in a counterfeit way. I'm sorry, my." My view of most of what happened with Billy Graham is along the same lines. Along the same lines. Uh, And so, revivalistic Christianity in America has ultimately become uh, one of the factors that's most contributed to the decline uh, and degeneration of Christianity in this country through conflict revivals. People completely lost the concept of what revival was. But you can have revival crusades, you know, and organize all of these altar calls and uh, having even liberals and Catholics involved. Who cares, you know? Uh, Jesus loves anyway. Um, So it is very evident, therefore, that we must recapture a biblical concept of what a revival is. And as I was saying, in the light of all this, chapter 2 is so important. Um, But my first, as we go back just a little bit to understand somewhat of the background, um, how did the Lord do this? Well, how did he prepare the church for this? That's a major question. If we want to see really revival, where, where do we need to be? How do we need to be? In what spiritual condition? In what state of mind? Well, what are we to do? What are we to be? If we really want to see revival happening... In a small or larger scale, according to God's sovereignty, the book of Acts is so tremendously enlightening. Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. Stop thinking about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. What you need to think about is what you need to do. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me to begin with in Jerusalem then in all Judea and Samaria And to the end of the earth. Well, that's quite a statement. (laughs) Two things. The witness of the church is necessary. You uh, shall be witnesses to me. (laughs) That means you will preach the gospel. (laughs) You will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. So you you shall be witnesses to me. The, the church is the instrument that God uses, the human voice <laughs> that God uses so that the gospel will be verbally communicated everywhere in the world. But that witness is not enough. The message is not enough. The word is not enough. You must have the Spirit. The word and the Spirit. So you shall be witnesses to me. You shall preach the gospel, but when the Holy Spirit will come upon you so that you may preach it effectively (laughs) with power. So that's why Paul writes to the Thessalonians saying, I know that you are the elect of God, because the gospel was preached to you with great power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. So the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, is essential, obviously. But we again see these two elements here, the preaching of the gospel through the lips of Christians, or booklets and tracts, and whatever means we can use to diffuse it, to spread it everywhere. But the uh, work of the Holy Spirit, who works inwardly in the mind, in the heart, and the conscience. <coughs> you need both. Always. But what you see here is one more element. You see something like a, a geographical program. <laughs> because he delineates for them exactly how, our, how they are to go about preaching the Gospel. Exactly where. He tells them where. He doesn't. it doesn't. Does not leave that to their own choice. He's the one who decides. He's the Lord of the Harvest. You begin here, Jerusalem. You expand a little to Judea. You expand a little to Samaria, and then you will go everywhere. That's the program. That's the schedule. <laughs> um, but now. Indeed, from a human standpoint, this doesn't really make any sense. Uh, Why? Well, because from a human standpoint, or perhaps allow me to say, from a uh, strategically, from a human standpoint, Jerusalem looks like the worst place to begin with. They don't want to stay in Jerusalem, we know that. They were hiding. they were were afraid why well because their greatest enemies are located in Jerusalem why not go to Galilee for example they were from Galilee (laughs) they spoke with a Galilean accent why not at home where people know me that's my place that's my environment that's my habitat (laughs) that's where I live places I know, people I know I'm comfortable I'm not going to be ridiculed because of my southern accent uh, or northern accent no, the Lord says Jerusalem but Lord, Jerusalem is not a right place it's the worst place for a lot of reasons what why would be so against human reasoning to begin with Jerusalem allow me to give you four simple things uh, the first one is that Jerusalem is special, but I, I would say Judea in a very particular way, was full of demons. Was full of demons. Would you go with me to Matthew chapter 4, for example? And look what we find there. Matthew chapter 4. In chapter 4 we find one of those passages in which the ministry of the Lord is summarized. And look at what it says in verse 23. Now Jesus went uh, about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to Him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed. Epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. Now, that statement—the most surprising statement here, at least from one standpoint—is not when he talks about you know diseases and illnesses. There's always been those. <laughs> But when he speaks about those who were demon possessed, and the reason why we ought to be surprised is that in the Old Testament you hardly ever hear of such a thing. Now I'm sure there were demon possessed people in the Old Testament as well, but when you pace through the Gospels, like Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, when he had come to the other side to the country of. Uh, Gerger Senes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And if you turn a page, Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And I'm sure that you are very familiar with the Gospel texts, to know that just about every page the Lord met somebody who was demon-possessed. The Bible speaks of many people, multiple people coming to Him, sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes many in the same day. We just read in Matthew 4 that wherever He went, there were people that were demon-possessed. Now, that's extraordinary. We just don't read that in the Old Testament. People were wicked, people were evil, but we never find, never in the Old Testament, such a presence of demons or demon-possessed people as we do in the Gospels. Why? Why? Well, because the greatest spiritual battle was being fought in the moment that the Lord Jesus took on human nature and came among us. Who was there when the Lord was born? Wasn't Satan operating when the Lord was born? Did not not try to kill him immediately? And we see Satan when the Lord begins his ministry. (laughs) Satan immediately goes and tempts him and tries to deceive him, possibly, Ah. and so we see his presence constantly through the Gospels and the presence of his demons so knowing that Satan cannot be everywhere because he's not omnipresent he must be localized because he's a creature it seems like he really made Jerusalem Judea Galilee his headquarters and that's the only thing that can explain this supermassive presence of demons in this area at this time in history because the Lord Jesus was there and the greatest battle was being fought uh, for the destiny of mankind and of the angelic race. Uh, it was Satan who entered the heart of Judas. He was everywhere. All the way through. So, why not go elsewhere? (laughs) Why not go where there was not such a massive presence of demons and devils and and Satan himself? But let me give you another reason. Uh, In Matthew 3, sorry, in Matthew 4, in Acts chapter 4, we go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter four. He says, "Now as the people, as they spoke to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and priests in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men." Uh, came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Cepheus, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now who are these? Uh, These are those who compose the Sanhedrin, the highest court of authority, In Palestine, in Israel at that time. Uh, Was the Sanhedrin favorable or unfavorable to Christians? It was uh, inimical. It was uh, contrary. They hated Christians. Just a few days before the Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus to death, as far as that was concerned. So, all these people are there. And they are the ones who arrest Peter and John in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Their enemies are there. Their greatest enemies are there. Even when it comes to uh, the Jews. And then, of course, you have the people of Jerusalem, you have the Jews. And you remember what Peter said himself as he preached in Acts 2 um, when he says in verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter accuses them of something they have actually done. Well, You would say, well, perhaps Peter was exaggerating because in Jerusalem for Pentecost, there were people, Jews, that had come from everywhere in the Roman Empire. (laughs) You see, but they had been there. They had been in Jerusalem already for Passover, and now they were at Pentecost 50 days later. But they were the very ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him that uh, that evening, that day. Uh, that, that morning. Um, but so these were the very ones who had hated Christ and wanted Christ crucified. These were not friendly people. They were completely against, against the Christians. Could it be expected that through a sermon this multitude of enemies would be changed? They were like beasts. Could that happen? It didn't happen when Christ was there. He preached for years to the same multitudes. They never believed. They followed Him for a little bit. But when they understood His message, they didn't like it. They thought it was too harsh and too hard. It humbled you pride too much. It made too little of men, too much of God. So, If they were so inimical, so hostile, why not go somewhere else? (laughs) Why not not go immediately to those who never heard at all the name of Christ? Why begin in this hostile place, the most hostile place in all of the world? What made it hostile to were the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities were in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate was still here. So why? Everything was against him. Why? Really? I think the answer we find in chapter 1. What immediately happened when, when the Lord Jesus left? Verse 12. After the Lord left as he ascended in glory, they returned to Jerusalem from the mound called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And these all persisted persisted with one accord with the same mind in prayer and pleading prayer and supplication prayer and pleading with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers now a few days were still to come before the you know, pentecost Ooh would be. And you ask, what did they do all that time, all those days? They did not preach yet, but they prayed. They prayed and prayed and prayed waiting for the power to come, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And once the Spirit had come, then they would open their mouth and begin to preach the gospel to all those around them. Uh, Let me take you again to Matthew chapter... uh, I'm sorry, Acts uh, chapter 4. We have already read when the apostles were imprisoned by the Sanhedrin because they preached Christ. And they were threatened... Do not preach Christ. And and Peter and John said, We cannot but preach Christ. Uh, This will be evangelical disobedience. Uh, We will continue to preach Christ. Uh, And they prayed again. When they went back to the church, they told the church about their threats. Look at uh, verse 23 being let go they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them in terms of threats so when they heard that you know if we preach the gospel we're going to be persecuted are we willing to face it Uh, so when they heard that They raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus. "...whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word." You see, they, they needed courage. <laughs> they needed courage because we are human and we can be intimidated. We can become fearful. We're not above that. Um, So they asked for that boldness that they may speak. Uh, By stretching out your hand to heal, the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God. The word of the gospel. With boldness. You see. They were contrasted. They were intimidated. They became fearful. As like lacking boldness. (laughs) Lacking zeal to preach. They asked for that. They specifically asked for that. Because they understood their human frailty. And when they asked for that. God Filled them with his Spirit. And because they were filled with the Spirit, they spoke. Because they were filled, they spoke. And by the way, when it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, is exactly the same expression that we have in Acts chapter 2. When we read these very words, in fact, uh, that were filled with the Spirit, verse 4, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. <laughs> it's exactly the same thoughts. Uh, the Bible would not have us to think of the, this kind of feelings of the spirit as something given once for all. No, it's not static, <laughs> it's dynamic. <laughs> it is when God makes us aware of our frailty, of our discouragement, we need strength, we need that renewal, and we must ask for it. And He gives that by uh, filling us with His Spirit again in a spiritual sense in the sense that our mind is changed, is renewed, our hopes are renewed, our we are encouraged. We can again take courage and regain that loss of zeal. The church is not, um, how should we say, it's not self-sufficient. It's not like God has given the Spirit once and for all and therefore we need not more. <laughs> or we need not ask to be refilled. (laughs) There's a sense in which that is true, that the Holy Spirit will be within us until the day of redemption, as to never leave us or forsake us. So He's the seal. The Holy Spirit Himself is the seal um, of our salvation. Um, But, as far as these feelings that we receive... Uh, this is something that takes place ordinarily, when we when we fall short, when we are discouraged, when we lose hope. That's what we need to pray for, and he again fills us again. But you see what happens here, in chapter four, they are threatened, they are fearful, they pray, they regain fullness of spirit, they continue to pray. So if we take that back to chapter 1, chapter 2, exactly what do we find here? We find that the Lord has purposely put the church in an impossible situation. God has put the church in an impossible situation. He has literally given them an impossible task to accomplish. This is not something they can do in time I'm sure we've come to understand that preaching of the gospel that our attempt to lead people to the Lord is the most difficult thing to be done on the face of this earth it is so difficult when God steps in then everything opens up <laughs> and he does it all but as he uses us to reach out and to, to have people to think to consider even people that are old they're about to give their last breath They have no mind for God. They feel nothing about stepping into eternity without God. We we cannot understand that. And so we we know that it is an impossibility. And plus, as we saw, he placed them in Jerusalem, the worst place thinkable. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense from a strategic warfare type of thinking. Let me begin where it's easier. And then little by little, I'll work my way to Jerusalem. <laughs> no, you begin in the worst place and you work your way out. Why did He do that? I believe because of what I read in verse 12 and 13 and 14. He did it to bring the church to its knees. That's why He did it. To bring the church to its knees. To bring the church in a state where believers, disciples felt what can we do? We need the Holy Spirit. We can't face all of this by ourselves. It is completely impossible. Uh, The Lord is not here. He left us. The Spirit is not here. What, What can we do? I mean, the Comforter, uh, it's not come yet and so what can we do so they felt that um, holy despair <laughs> in themselves the Lord put them in a place of complete despair unless they had the, the power of God the strength of God the comfort of God the consolation of God the protection of God the protection of God they didn't have that power you shall receive power. What does that imply? They didn't have any power. They didn't have any power. That very statement implies that the Lord fully understood their condition. This is not in you. You don't have what is required here to do the work. Only God can do that. So when we are brought face to face with an impossibility, with something that we cannot do, and yet we are commanded to do. What, what can we do? What can we do? We can only say, I, I'm not able, but you can enable me. I'm not able. I'm unable even to think one good thought in myself, Paul says. And yet he says, but through Christ who strengthens me, who gives me power, I can do all things. Whatever He commands, He can give me the ability to do this. Which, when we think about it, you know, this is the basic, the most basic principle of the Christian life. In time, I've come to see that in the Christian life are not things that are easier Some things that I can do, some things I cannot do. There's really nothing that I can do on my own. Some things appear more easy, more ordinary, but apart from His grace, we can do nothing at all. And we should live like that in a state of total dependence from the tiniest thing to the most important things, complete dependence is the very antithesis of free will by the way we don't have a ability in anything at all can you make heart our heartbeat our mind think our lungs to breathe it all comes from god but the church has to be reduced to this point so that they can pray cry out be filled with the spirit and then go out and evangelize and then God can use that humble instrument for His glory. And if He sees fit, as we saw, He can turn everything around. We don't have time tonight. We need to end. But if we read on, we would read for what? The church have come to count so many thousands of people. Only the men were 5,000. Which means the church must have been 12, 15,000. You count the women, usually more than the men, than some of the younger people. I mean, this is an amazing thing that has taken place here in a very short time. In a place that looked just impossible, that would even be one convict would have been a wonderful thing, an extraordinary thing. Um, But God went way beyond that and He saved thousands in a matter of days and weeks. Now the question is, can he do that still? Perhaps not in the same numbers, but can he do that still? He has done it through history many times. Can he do it now? In the world as we know it. Has it become too hard? Is this beyond hope? It looks that way to me. It looks that way to me. If we fix our eyes on what's going on, what they're planning to do, what they're actually planning to do with our world, with God's world, it looks like, who can stop them? Who can stop them? Who can humble the herds of this world? But as we learn from Acts chapter 12, God can humble the herds of this world. He can still bring them down. Sometimes He uses mercy to do so. Sometimes He uses judgment. And I believe we can pray for both. (laughs) I believe we can pray for both. Some Christians would raise their eyebrows and say, you cannot pray for God's judgment. You know, we're not violent. (laughs) Uh, You can only pray for mercy, not for judgment. But the whole Bible tells us different. Really. not just the Old Testament we need to pray for both I would say because of the proportions that we have in scripture we need to pray for especially for mercy but when it comes to some tyrants some people of utter evil they must be stopped the Hitlers of our history then I believe we must pray for judgment to yeah. we must pray for judgment to people at Bonhoeffer in Germany felt that they could go as far as to attempt killing them because they were destroying the world Uh, burning millions of children in furnaces that they had they it was it was legitimate for them to go as far as to kill the tyrants. now that's a very difficult question of course Uh, And if I think of Hitler and who he was, I would say yes. (laughs) I would say yes. I cannot fault Bonhoeffer. I don't know if I would do the same thing or not, but I cannot fault him with Hitler. The the hard thing about that is that you get into a subjective issue. When is it that the tyrants go too far? And so it's a very, very delicate thing. We need to be very careful. But at least we can pray that God can bring judgment. Uh, When you have time, read uh, Psalm 10, for example. Certainly, uh, David prayed for judgment. When he thought of the tyrants who were massacring children and widows and orphans, he prayed for judgment, for God to do judgment so I think we can do the same but mostly we need to pray for mercy and revival and so i conclude with this one thought <laughs> I know it looks dark if you don't see that it's dark it must be that you've been living in an igloo or something <laughs> oh if we follow the news, if we look at our world, if we study what's happening it looks impossible we've gone too far the mechanisms are all there. They have their internet, they have their controlling of the minds, they have their Facebooks, they have all all that all that they need. Not quite, but just about. But God can still work mighty wonders. So I end where I began, this tension. We can say, this is going too far, Lord is too depraved, return to us. Come and take us out of here. Uh, and that's legitimate. At times it feels very legitimate. But then we cannot be defeatists. We, we must still always believe that God can come back and re- revive his people. Add to the church. <laughs> Thousands. All of a sudden, he can do that. Again, I say, throughout history, there have been times so dark, it looked like the Lord was about to come, just a few minutes away. But he didn't. He turned things around. Think of the, of the Reformation. What a mighty thing was that? People don't understand it. We still know very little about the Reformation, in spite of all the books. <laughs> You know what we, need? we know a little about the Reformation? Field preachers. We need a lot, we know a lot about Calvin, Luther, and Knox, and, but we know a little about the unknowns. Uh, those who went uh, field after field, town after town preaching the gospel, often underground because there was no freedom. Uh, but God can, can bring a new Reformation. It does not, this is the basic message, it doesn't matter how dark it gets. Even as dark as we see it today, we still cannot give up hope that the Lord can turn things around and put a stop, at least momentarily, to give respite to His people. We can regain strength and testimony and we can see an enlargement of His kingdom. Bring it in the sheep all the sheep must be saved he promised that in John chapter 10 I will gather them for sure and he will amen